Um, welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, my guest today, Sophie Ailes from Sydney. Or not from, are you from Sydney? Is that really where you're from? I am actually. I've had an incredible global sprint around yeah. the world for the last 20 years um, and can't stop. I'd love to do it again, keep going. But yeah, I am actually from Sydney and grew up here. Yep. Cool. So um, thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And um, why don't we start? Why don't you give us like a quick, very quick two minutes, how you got to where you got to now? Sure. So, where does it start? I, th I think the good place to start is, is is Australia, right? You know, I grew up here in Australia. I was lucky enough to have some, you know, experience of the world, you know, through travel. And, you know, I was actually born here, but at a very early age, you know, moved to the UK and I was very young. But I think what that gave me is sort of a an understanding that there was a big world out there, you know, and I certainly wanted to try and impact it. Um, growing up in Australia is brilliant. You know, it's, it's where a lot of people, everyone says Australians always come home, right? You know, it's particularly when they have family, it's kind of, it's, it, it's nice, it's safe, it's good. You've got brilliant innovation, brilliant people here. But I think, um, as an Australian, and this is sort of gets to my story, you're always interested in what the sort of broader world is about. And I knew very quickly after I finished university, by the way, I studied fine arts, which I think is the antithesis of the commercial world that I entered. Um, I knew that I wanted to sort of take on the world. And I did. And I, my first stop was actually in Paris, you know, as a good, any good old Australian, I, I traveled um, after uni, I was a good girl and finished a degree first. Um, and I landed um, in Paris, and I went to the Sorbonne to study French. And I was lucky enough to live with a woman there who introduced me to Brett Gosper. And Brett Gosper at the time was running TBWA. And that was a huge influence. He brought me in as a stagiaire. It was completely, don't know if I could say this, but I think it was pretty much cash in hand, you know, in terms of visas and those things. But I was literally in there um, helping, helping the business pull together their disruption, you know, World Bank, if you remember. I mean, it still is, isn't it? TBWA yeah. is all about disruptive thinking. And that was a huge influence in what I wanted to do. I'd never been introduced to the world of, advertising and I think landing in Paris not only the sort of cool factor of where the the business was the casualness of having no matter what deadlines lunch every day you know the sort of French way of doing work was um, very inspiring but the most inspiring was the strategy piece and that was a way of thinking you know and being very um, lateral and um you know, thinking in a different way. And they had all sorts of tools to do that. And that was my first role is to pull together all the different global examples of what that looked like. So that opened, um, I, I think, many doors for me. So when I came back to Australia, there was a very iconic agency called the Campaign Palace. And the Campaign Palace back in the day, incredibly famous for the work. And it was all about creativity. And it was a tough place to work. You know, it was, it was flat structure. It was, it was only senior people. Women weren't particularly in, in lead roles um, there, but I worked with probably the best people you could um, around understanding the role of creativity um, and some brilliant strategists um, there, which opened then the door. There was two particular strategists. Well, actually, all the strategists in Australia weren't from Australia. They were from the UK, and that's where the discipline started, right? And they all said to me, you need to get the skills, you know, and learn how to think and and um, understand 
culture and customer and problem solving, which we were brilliant at at the Campaign Palace. But you really need to get back out there and get best experience you can from the best people you can. So after five years of working at the Campaign Palace, which was crazy in every level, you know, in terms of sort of party, hard, trying to find the creatives at the local bar, um, but just awesome work, you know, absolutely ambitious around the work. I decided to go back to explore the world and I landed at Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners back in New York and was lucky enough to work with the brilliant Rose Ryan, Bill Oberlander, you know, the planning department, you know, good old Domenico Vitale, you know, Ian, you know, there's some really interesting people there. And it was a big, um, it was quite a big department actually. And we did brilliant work and it was really, again, different casting, very sort of New York centric, very Soho, a lot of fun, but brilliant, um, clients you know I was working on the target business and the iconic bullseye which was absolutely um you, you know world class at the time in terms of how we launched it in 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 the east in New York and and you know how we created own labels around it um there was a lot of the dot, dot com sort of work and you know that was hugely exciting back then and I had access to all sorts of people because you're in New York and as an Australian you don't get that right you, you you're always reading about it didn't have podcasts really. Um, anyway, so that was Kirschenbaum where I thought they were pretty innovative. You know, it, it again continued to push my entrepreneurialism, I think creative spirit, my passion, my curiosity of how to solve problems differently. They were brilliant at bringing in design, bringing in um, different mix of people. They had the media um, kitchen, you know, so media was absolutely at the forefront of thinking and data. Um, and I learned a lot there, um, traveled a lot, um, got experience in a much bigger way that I could really get some big experience, I suppose, behind me. So when I do move back to Australia, you can talk to US, you know, corporate US um, and some of the big businesses that I'd worked on. Whereas when you talk from Australia, it, it's seemingly it punches above its weight, I think, like New Zealand does in terms of impact. But it. Um, it's not as considered huge, brilliant case studies um, that people are looking for that you get from Europe and, and the US. So I began to really build my brand, I suppose. Kirschenbaum, um, after that, I uh, got a role back in Australia as CSO at MNC Saatchi. And that was a big step. You know, I, I felt like I had the credentials and I certainly had the passion, but to go back into a very different type of agency quite a growing up agency. And if you know Sydney, it was sort of Macquarie Street. Macquarie Street is where the serious end of town is. You know, it's not the sort of Soho's or Surrey Hills now. Um, and so I was one of the first sort of heads of strategy trying to build a department there. Um, and we were very successful, MNC Saatchi, both in the UK, as you would know, and in Australia, because on the back of the British Airways and Qantas business. And so the remit there was trying to really build um, you know, more, more business and, and build a planning culture um, in an agency that was pretty pioneering and, and successful. And I love that. And I was only there for really um, a, sort of a short time because uh, Tom Derry, who was very influential in building MC Saatchi in Australia, who was actually worldwide chairman based out of Australia, um, kept taking me back to the US. Um, and we built the Los Angeles office that is 
just closed actually about a year ago with Kate Bristow. Um, but, you know, really interesting to start getting global again with off the back of MNC Saatchi. They're very, if you know the MNC story, a very pioneering um, Morris and Charles and um, pretty precocious and, and kind of open up to um, starting businesses anywhere. So then I went off to Asia as the head of region strategy, which was pretty terrifying. I hadn't even really been to Asia and I'm like, what am I going to add to trying to build the regional um, uh, business um, in, in Asia, which to be honest, Morris and Charles really didn't know a lot about, certainly didn't have the Rolodex there. Um, but it was an opportunity as a family to move um, to Asia. I'd never really inspired to, to go there. But again, as a strategist, culturally, you're solving completely different, very wild problems. You know, why, why medicine when you're in China? You know, they were still, you know, looking at grandma, you know, and sort of their soup. And, you know, how do you sell a, a small BMW? Um, we know how to do that in Western markets, but how do you do that when they don't drive? You know, so the problem solving was completely different. And it very quickly, I love that. And I think that built another sort of muscle, not so much in terms of creativity in Asia, but going back to basics, doing a lot of training, enabling and building teams across Asia, opening new offices off the back of some big new wins. And then um, we went back to the US again. Um, why? It was sort of family and different reasons, husband in the industry. He was offered a role back there this time. And I leapt at it because um, I love New York and I just find it incredibly dynamic and inspiring. And there are all these centers of the world that I feel, I felt New York was the center of the world. And then I went to Asia and you're in working and you're in China and Shanghai. And I thought, oh no, that's the center of the world. And when I was in Asia, I was lucky enough to do a lot of work on the country of Abu Dhabi, you know, building the brand of a country and you go, oh no, that's the center of the world, you know? And so I've had so many different global experiences. Anyway, this time, three kids in hand, we go back to New York um, and I was lucky enough to connect back in with Rose and Ty at Co-Collective and did a lot of work for them. And, and I sort of, permalance as they call it in the US and, and just took on big roles. I think because of my network that I'd built through Kirschenbaum and some of the, the global experiences, I also landed at BBDO with Paul Madison at um, running the AT&T business until they found the person that, that ran it eventually. Um, I was at Anomaly and I purposely went to some of the best, like I always have, best places, best people to just learn and grow and just be continuously trying to move forward, um, which was which was fascinating for me, very dynamic, I never got bored. Which brings me to now, or sort of at least seven years ago, as I'm going as fast as I can. So when you come back to Australia, it's like, what do you do? You know, what do you do without being arrogant? It's not that, it's just how do you continue to be fed and feel curious and be stimulated, not get jaded? And there was an opportunity to get very deep into a business that was struggling and that was the Woolworths Group. So in 2016, as Australia's largest retailer, very similar to the Tesco story really, it was not innovating and it really had turned its back on customers. And I, as a strategist, had worked across so many different sectors and so many different cultures. You know, really as a strategist, you work on a lot of new business. And this was an opportunity to go very deep um, into a huge business and try to reinvent it and 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 demonstrate the power of and value of brand I suppose through the organization 
So this could be interesting, and I'll stop there, stop soon. But what we did is we built, um, we, 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 we understood what the problem was, and we had a very small team. And what we decided to do was to build a completely new model, which we called the Greenhouse. And it was really steered by the CEO of Woolworths called Brad Banducci. He was an incredibly successful management consultant and run all sorts of brilliant businesses and sold them and, and now is the CEO of Woolworths Group, which has um, done an incredible job to build that business again. But rather what really attracted me to Greenhouse was the opportunity to build a new model that was very progressive, that's not an in-house agency and it wasn't in the agency. Um, and I can talk about that in a minute. Um, to, to work with some brilliant people, to be a partner in the business, to build a culture and to build really a new way of working that got very um, close to the business. And I think as strategists, that's what we were always trying to do, isn't it? We're trying to get as upstream as possible. And so it was an opportunity to really make a huge impact. Um, and so from 2016 to now, basically, I have been really leading the brand strategy practice at Greenhouse, which is 10 strategists and the Greenhouse is about 80 people, 75 people. Um, and we really power the brand and all the creativity um, for the Woolworths Group, which the brand and the business um, have had the most success that they've ever seen. Um, they're now most trusted brand and they're really leading the way again. And so that's where I, that's where I am. And, and so after seven and a half years, building and having the kind of flexibility, the canvas, the impact, the growth, which was such fun to really sort of be the strategist and have the team and really drive what that business needs um, and really now reaching, um, you know, running through many chapters and sort of reaching the success of that business, which needs to continue and the greenhouses continue. Um, this year I decided to step out. It was difficult, but decided to step out and, um, look for my next challenge and that's where I'm up to. I think that was more than two minutes, but I've probably given you a headache of the different parts of the world. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think you've been on a, you've been a, I mean, my journey can be really boring. It's 20 years at <laughs> one place. You know, 20 years at one place is kind of easy to explain. So I'm going to go, I'm going to want to rewind, go back. Um, so you went to do, you went to university in the UK no, I was university here in Australia at Sydney University. I was a fine arts student. I studied like Italian architecture, okay. um, loved the arts world. I also did psychology, you know, psychology and, and a major in history. And I and I studied French just for a bit of fun. You know, I, you I didn't love it at school and then I had a passion for it. So you went to Sorbonne to do fine arts? No, 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 I went to Sorbonne just to do French. So I had finished my degree. I came out with a Bachelor of Arts in fine arts. And then when I decided to sort of set sail, as a lot of Aussies do, yeah. I wanted to experience a place. You know, a lot of sort of Australians just travel and travel and, and that's fun, but I wanted to really stop and experience a place. And so I decided that would be Paris for two reasons. One, for the arts and the love of the arts and the culture. But the other for why not take some time after a uni degree and before I knew exactly where I wanted to go, and just spend sort of a couple of months at the Sorbonne, you know, learning French. It wasn't it wasn't a big degree. It was just learning French, meeting different people, living in a country, and and absorbing a culture. And I ended up staying there for two and a half years. So so 
from all that to going into CBWA, how did, because that's kind of a big sort of leap to yeah. learning French. You could pretty much do nothing you, I mean, it's a surprise. So is that like people, you somebody you met, did something happen that? Absolutely. I had never intended or understood or yeah. even did a degree around marketing or, or, or advertising. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. Um, what happened was I was lucky enough to find an apartment. I went to Paris. I knew no one um, mm-hmm. and ended up like a lot of students do sort of sharing apartments. And I ended up sharing an apartment um, off a pretty, um, a, a woman called Marie Consigny. And she happened to be the granddaughter of Elizabeth Brassard, who started the Cordon Bleu cooking school. Now that didn't get me into advertising, but I thought, or at least I'd have some pretty good meals. You know, I would, I was in a good place. It was a great apartment. Um, you know, it's very French. I wasn't really allowed into sort of the main rooms or anything, but um, it was in a good space and it was a lovely walk to get to the Sorbonne each day. So that ticked my first box, you know, an interesting, an interesting area, a great place. When, um, I spoke to her and my desire to, to stay a little bit longer. Clearly it was good business for her, for me to stay and continue to, to, to share a room. She introduced me to another Australian she knew as, as it begins to happen. And that was Brett Gosper. Now, the reason I mentioned his name is he, he's a really interesting guy. He now runs the worldwide rugby. I'm not, not going to get it right, but he's, he started an agency in the UK when at Gosper, he came over to Europe actually as a wallaby, which is a Aussie, uh, rugby union player I don't think that that career was you know forever and he ended up at BDDP at the time with Jean-Marie Drew running TBWA you know BDDP turned into TBWA as managing director and so I was lucky enough to be introduced to him as two Aussies meet um, and he asked me what I was up to and what I wanted to do and I, I met him at the agency the agency was in um, the 16th in, you know Aaron Dismore it was just looked fun you know lots of young people puppies and dogs everywhere and you know everyone out for lunch and he said would I be interested to come in and be a stagiaire which is a graduate trainee kind of role and that opened a massive door and worked with some brilliant people strategy was central to TBWA off the back of their philosophy of disruption and that's what got me going I was fascinated day one in as a strategist I never did the sort of client service into strategy or copywriter into strategy piece I was able to go directly in and I think learn how to think in a really interesting way because of what Brett you know got me to do my French was okay I, he put me firstly in the sort of international um part uh, which was sort of running Tag Hoyer and Sheraton, wasn't running it at all. I was literally just helping, trying to answer the phone and do bits and pieces. And then um, I started studying French at night. It got a bit better and they put me on to, weirdly, because it's sort of full circle with supermarkets, uh, a, a big supermarché, my pronunciation is horrible at the moment, um, which was a French supermarket. Um, so I began to get a taste, I suppose, of... Um, European business and 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 um a little bit around food and grocery I mean it really wasn't I wasn't that deep into it but I think the biggest thing there that really opened up and got me to where I am now is 
the way of thinking um, around disruption. It's still going strong. And, and I think a lot of agencies talk about having a brand. I think TBWA is one of the best ones that I think have continued to, to drive that tool through everything they do. I remember on every brief there was what's the disruptive thought, you know, in all the, the ways we interacted with clients. It was absolutely through disruptive thinking and different questions that we would ask. And they were pretty famous. You know, they did the the Michelin guide, you know, which was brilliant thinking back then. And that was way before me. But to create a Michelin guide off the back of a tire business to encourage people to drive to restaurants was genius, you know. And, and I think they've got many of those examples. And I think those examples is really what I love about branding today. It's not about the ad so much. It's about the the brand and how you can differentiate and operationalize that through a business and really create, you know, a huge, huge impact um, and much meaning, you know, a meaningful difference. Yeah, it's interesting when you, when you go back in your career, you, you know, it's interesting the choices you made around agencies because apart from like one or two maybe examples of big network, you tended to stay in the more creatively focused agencies, you know, Kirkenborn, uh, Anomaly, MNC, you know, they're they're all focused on creativity primarily. They're not systems. That's my biggest fear: is systemizing. I'm not interested in it. I I, I I've been I've been either lucky or deliberate. I don't know, but the people I meet who are dynamic and bit more game-changing, brave, push push a client, um, have a brilliant culture, you know, learn and try different things, I think is still so relevant today. And I've absolutely been drawn to that. Um, my biggest fear is, as you mentioned, that word systemizing. I mean, you everyone thinks the same and I'm not interested to just do a role. I'm interested in making a difference. I think Rose Ryan said to me once, you want to continue to move forward. It's not about moving up. You know, you want to do both, but it's about moving forward. And I think that's that continuous learning. You know, even the other day, I just got off an INSEAD course, an online course where I'm learning about digital ecosystems and partnerships. It's like I'm in that space for Woolworths. We did a lot around building ecosystems and new revenues of growth, but I had never stopped and had the opportunity to stop and build that new sort of muscle and and rigor behind how you do it. I think a lot of people today are pioneering because there's no rule book. So I'm just interested in um, in that, I guess, being in the right space, um, having some brave conversations. I mean, Kirschenbaum was brilliant. I'll never forget doing pitches where Richard Kirschenbaum would serve sorbet in between the work. I mean, it was just culturally fun. And I think it's so clever because if you have a culture that's attractive it attracts brilliant people brilliant people stay they want to do a big job for them you know we lived in these places we didn't yeah. come and we certainly didn't want to work from home yeah, yeah. you know what we're yeah. doing today we yeah we yeah i mean so so kind of what's happened is it's changed you know right a lot has changed i mean not to say that these places don't exist, but they don't, there's not the same spirit, um, the same characters, and the same behavior, I think, even, you know, it's a lot, everything's got a lot safer, you know. Yeah, I, I struggle to 
Well, look, I think what's really exciting in Australia now and, and New York, I think you do have, there's brilliant pockets and still brilliant brilliance everywhere. But I think it's the indies, right? In Australia, there's this huge wave again of indie agencies, some some really brilliant launches. And, and we've been part of that, haven't we? There's always the indie agencies and, you know, um, but they're the ones that have the scope and space and, and, um, and kind of approach to, to really push the boundaries. Um, yeah. And that's where the excitement is. I think the excitement over here too is in the VCs and startup world, like it would be in, in the US. Um, you know, there's excitement, I think, in, in, in some of the agencies in New York when I was there in December, you know, Bullish, I think is brilliant. Um, Gale, I think is interesting. Um, I love what Johnny's doing at Blackstone on a completely other level. You know, and I think at the core of all of this is is trying new things. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But um, I think how do you continue to inspire and push and provoke um, without being a heretic, you know, but having the experience behind you to do that? Um, I think that's what's exciting. But I would agree with you. It feels less so now and you know, where will it go in terms of when I mention the word systemizing and AI and where that's going, it'll either elevate us all again um, or, you know, it'll change the game, but it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next five years. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what, what's interesting is you, you sort of got, I mean, PBWA's destruction model was sort of a litmus test in a way, if, if you didn't buy into it, you didn't want to do it, it was basically saying you've got to be different. It was, the basic model was we can find some traits, tropes of the category that you're in. And the way to change the game is to change the tropes of the category and not play by the category rule. So that requires a psychographic mindset that we want, we're willing to change. We're willing to be disruptive, right? We've heard that some clients have walked out of disruption meetings, basically saying this isn't for us, right? So fair Gary. enough. Well, fair enough. Okay. okay. Um, and I think I think it's a really good lesson, as you said. I, it's a great example of of branding, and actually risk taking, because a lot of agencies don't even want to really sort of play a positioning game. They don't really want to be labeled as anything because they don't want to turn down. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it still surprises me that, you know, Droga had Facebook and the New York Times. I, I, I sort of feel, how could you possibly have both of them? You know, um, it doesn't seem sort of right to me that, that on one hand, you're fighting the good fight for journalism. On the other hand, you're working on behalf of a post uh, of a company that's sort of collectively trying to destroy journalism. So, I I think it's I I think it's really interesting um, to have a point of view and to have a pro. What's so good about that is there's a process behind it, and it's that sort of an almost an academic. It's got to the level of the curriculum, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's not just like some copy on a website. There's actually disruption sessions and this and that, and it's it's it's, a, it's an actual way, which really I mean there are there are just 
I don't think there are. I think it's probably one example of very few, maybe a handful, even at that. M and C Sanchi were pretty good. I, I think they've lost it a bit. Uh, I think it comes it was back. All about simplicity, wasn't it? Brutal, brutal simplicity of thought, and I love the word brutal. Clients don't always, but yeah. you know, um, as a strategist, it's about how do you cut through, and and it's a brutal exercise to do it. Um, but it's very compelling when you can, and the amount of workshops that you run, what we used to call BST sessions, brutal mm-hmm. simplicity of thought, to really get to the core truth and the biggest problem and priority, clients would walk out relieved. You know, they don't want the 90-page deck. You know, they want you to cut through and find the core um, problem to solve, I suppose, and what's that customer truth, and off we go. So right. I think that that was pretty compelling. And if you look at the work back then, I think it did push through into the work. They were very, particularly in Australia, I think the UK as well. I mean, I think MNC Saatchi has done some brilliant work. But in Australia, back in, gosh, there was some just really, like, simple, fun, just creative, um, uh, you know, work that just sort of cut through and... um, it was all about the personality of a brand and and just how to get people to like you again. And I think it was very compelling. When when we had to, when I was in Asia, it was funny actually. It got so much into brutal simplicity of thought. We had to get briefs down to one word. And and you can imagine being in India or China trying to explain that philosophy. I was working on tourism Australia at the time, and that was one of our first global um, pieces of business. As MNC hadn't brilliant pieces but they hadn't really had big global pieces and trying to sell a one-word strategy around openness of Australia to Asia you know was was difficult because for a number of reasons but the biggest ones they didn't want that they wanted the icons they wanted the koalas and opera houses you know they weren't interested in the more sort of you know academic or ethereal or emotion of a brand so it was just fascinating um time to to be there but I think the ambition of one-word strategies was was quite compelling. Um, and then it became a tool. I'm not sure if the UK use it much. I think it's still in the in the kind of in the architecture, but um they've moved on, really, particularly here in Australia. They've got brilliance around defining businesses' big ambition, which is a really interesting space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like they've moved on without anything. But yeah, yeah. Um, updated. I think brutal simplicity of thought is quite famous, similar to disruption. Yeah, yeah. So when when you think of Australia, you think of I always think of sort of like the canvas of culture that our advertising exists within. And I always think of Australian advertising as being sort of very close into the culture. It's sort of like the best advertising gets the zeitgeist truly, which is always sort of like to me, it gets, I mean, great advertising everywhere does this, but Australia has a sort of distinctive, clear culture that um, the best work tends to play with that. Um, and then, I wonder how you felt working in that sense of a very kind of clear, I mean, Aussie culture is Aussie culture, and then you come to America and there is no sort of singular culture. It's it's multiple cultures. And I wonder what you think about the differences between the two 
sort of like, and I know Australia's a lot smaller. I always think Australia, the UK, it's sort of there's a sort of a village mentality. There's a sort of like advertising sort of it would spark a discussion, you know, and it would come from a discussion because it would all be like everyone sort of speaking the same cultural language. Whereas in America, it's so hard to find a singular language, you know, so it tends to get very broad and tries to appeal to kind of a lot of people without, without kind of really getting to the richness. Um, I know I was really into the lamb campaign. I don't know. Yeah. I just thought it was kind of really brilliant about just the, the observations that were being made in that campaign, even though it's sort of like COVID, sort of political stuff that you just so wouldn't. Topical. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't see people like being brave enough to kind of take those things on. But there's something, there's something about Australian culture that allows you brands to do that because this is a zero expectation of a, of a game that's being played between the best brands and the audience. I, 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 think, think. I think you've nailed probably the most, well, I think I, when, when you're talking, there's there's the older work and, and, and Australia, I think humour cuts through in Australia. Yeah, you know, Australians fun. are quite, quite to the point. Yeah. Uh, they use humour to kind of cut through and take sort of the seriousness out of a conversation. It's quite laconic. You know, it's it's sort of very, it, it shifted a lot, but it was all about mateship, you know, and, and when you think back in the 80s almost or 90s and you look at those very laconic 4X and 2Es, mm. the beer, beer commercials, they really nailed the spirit of Australia and the spirit was very much rallying around as I say, mateship and sporting fields, you know, the, the kind of how do you use, you know, sport that sort of rallies a nation and how do you attach that to your brand and those big moments of success, winning the America's World Cup, you know, I don't think we've won it since, but, you know, winning the America's World Cup, the big the big global, uh, the rugby league, which really brings the nation together, AFL, you know, I know that's similar in the US, but they were very clever at, at connecting to that, to that culture, the laconicness through humor, the mateship, the Aussie patriotism of sports. I think, I think then you look at AMLC, it's much more sophisticated in a way. I mean, in a way it's not because it has a big laugh at contemporary politics, um, the un-Australian work, which is the, the, the kind of the latest work. If you've seen that, where they literally created a world that was, that's un-Australian you know, and it was really a good, you know, um, reminder of of what's an Australian. You know, we are we should be friendly, we should be inclusive, we should be warm. We are an easy to get to know and accessible nation. You know, you hear that a lot when you travel. That Australians are pretty easy to get to have fun with. You know, Australians. I think do very well on the world stage around work. They're not stuck to their swim lane. They're happy to help. They're happy to kind of be. I think um, curious and interested, and they haven't had that opportunity in a smaller market, so they're kind of open. They open their arms. Um, I think the AMLC work is—it's a bit like um, waiting for the for the big Christmas work from from John Lewis, right? What, yeah. How are they going to be? What are they going to do next? Yeah, what are they going to do? Are they going to upstage the thing they've already done? 
Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. But but what the big sorry the big big difference I think where Australia is is equally as diverse as the US. I mean it's it's different right. in terms of uh, one in four Australians born in Asia. You know we're born overseas. It's a hugely diverse country, and I think brands have been very slow to capture that. And it's mm-hmm. a big shift now, and particularly AMLC. If you look at the work, it's very. Mm-hmm um it has to be and I think that provides another springboard for creativity the different cultural influences and what is Australian you know and they very much provoke that question and I think it's been um very successful in shifting from this sort of white mateship sporting arena to much more of a diverse culture to demonstrate what true Australia is all about yeah it's very interesting because it's sort of like a very macho culture traditionally and now you know you've got other things outside of sports. So food has become a big deal in Australia. You know, um, it was just a shrimp on the barbie, but now, yep. and, but and now it's a little bit more sophisticated. There's a level of, you know, it's a sort of challenge to the very direct uh, unfussiness. It's suddenly now you've got a little bit more sophistication. And um, that's just an interesting, that's an interesting uh, challenge to the culture and how people respond to that. To me, I always I always looked at India as being just India at one point would just win every single strategy award. You know, it was just every everything they entered, they won because their culture was going through such a transformation that they just you know you pinned a brand on something that was changing around women in society and it was going to strike a chord because this was a culture that was moving so fast. And I think that's back to your point about Asia. When you went to Asia, I had a friend who was doing something similar. It was like he said to me, he was he was working on um, P and G. He said when an American marketeer came to, went to Asia for the first time, they kind of they leaned so heavily on their strategy team because they knew nothing. Whereas in the states, you couldn't tell them anything new. They knew everything about. They needed to know about toothpaste. But when they went to China, they knew nothing about toothpaste. So the strategy which takes such a fundamental role in helping them to understand because they just didn't understand. And um, so I think, um, you know, that, you know, a really, you know, where the culture is changing so rapidly is a place like places where strategy thrives, I think. And, and, uh, and I think like any brand, you need to wrap yourself in different experiences, right? And then you become the... You, you, that that builds you I think you know what you're talking about the different cultural experiences the different problems you know me trying to understand Australia market versus the US or sort of different parts of the US um, India uh, China I mean they're not just these big blanket places yeah. you know they're, they're, you, you absolutely learn different things I think to your point in in Asia it, it's how do you listen and understand how do you use your local people who absolutely have their ear in social channels and uh you know conversations I can't add to that I can learn from them and then talk about how to build a brand around that very different to my impact I might have had in the US or here in Australia um but you're very reliant I was very reliant in listening to 
culture and how it changed, how you impact it, how you, um, I remember doing a big brief around luxury in, in, in China and it was just literally all about texture. It wasn't about anything else. You know, what are the codes of luxury? I suppose that's similar globally, but it was very different at the time. Yeah. And you had to understand the nuances of that. And I found that so fascinating culturally. So where I would add value is bringing that team together, you know, not having all the answers, bringing the team together, helping train, showing different case studies, asking different questions, helping build the frameworks. But the the insights had to come not just from me, they had to come from, you know, the different methodologies we would use to sort of um, understand, you, you know, how to connect with these different customer types. Um, that's how you learn. I, I think walking in different worlds would be a sort of a summary oh, yeah. of what I've done, right? You know, and what any good strategist does. How do you get out there and not just sit behind a Google screen that we all right. do? Um, what's interesting, what's fascinating to me is um, so what was happening in Asia, I mean, there was a staggering transformation, economic transformation in these countries, right? If you think from basically agrarian to industrial and the wealth creation, you took, a, you took millions out of poverty, you created a, a, a wealthy class, you created the middle class from nothing. So you really kind of, you kind of had the same sort of transformation as you saw in America in the 50s post-war in these Asian markets. What we're struggling with over here, and I think in a lot of Western marketplaces, is the idea that we're not making progress anymore. And what's well, I think what I'm hearing time and time again is actually when you do go out there and you start talking to people, you don't hear a lot of really good news. And that is very, very difficult. What we've we've got we've got the whole transmission of news and information. It doesn't matter whether you're a strategist presenting a debrief or the client listening to a news report, they sort of apply the same antenna. antenna. They, they sort of, they quickly glaze over because, yeah. because we've got almost information overload and we've got negative information overload. And, you know, especially with the pandemic and, you know, it's almost people really didn't know how to cope. And so it's, it's now, as a Western strategist, and you're going in and you're talking about people who are going through tough times, I mean, in America, it's like becoming really, really apparent in the last six or seven months with inflation and what's going on. There's a huge bifurcation in society. There's the haves and the have-nots. And the haves are continuing as life is normal, and the have-nots are trying completely new behaviors. They're the ones abandoning brands, going straight into private label, you know, all these things. Yeah. And so, um, oh, I guess my shorthand is when the worlds are dynamic and moving and there's a lot of money around and there's a lot of positivity, it's easy to get to energize. When things are the opposite, you have to, you have to find a positive framing. You have to find a positive frame in a challenging time. And um, 
that to me for Western strategists and the Western markets is really what they need to be trying to do. I think COVID, um, I don't know if this is where where you're running, but I think um, what is, I, I agree. I mean, it's dire, you know, inflation, you know, the world um, turning upside down. I remember writing all sorts of strategies around new normal and we didn't even know what it was. It was just yep. sort of a fourth tranche of a horizon that no one really filled in, but we knew we were going to get there. Um, but I think what what's interesting and what, what's helpful, but I'm not sure everyone's doing it, is you've got to innovate through through a crisis, yeah. right? You know, and I think that's hard to, to, to talk to, right? Because everyone's clinging in, efficiency becomes, you know, the most important budgets have shifted. Um, I happened to be working in Woolworths at the time through COVID. It was the most innovative time ever for them. Yeah, and and look, you know, should, they were making. Should, should, we just, should we just press pause for a second because I yeah. really want you to explain who Woolworths is because it doesn't really exist. Sure, in, uh, and well, it's a totally different entity in in Australia. Woolworths is is Australia's largest retailer. It's a food, primarily a food business. You know, it's equivalent in the UK of a Tesco's. Um, you know, it's not it's not quite a Walmart. It's um, oh, you know, just the big food supermarket, basically. Um, and how many they, stores? How many stores across Australia? Would, would well, there's 180,000 people. There'd be over a thousand stores. Okay. And what's really interesting, you know, they're big. They're on every corner, either small, medium, or large. So people know Woolworths. They call it by their sort of nickname Woolies, you know, so where's your local Woolies, which is quite nice. And that was really helpful in rebuilding the brand love and connection back. Um, but a Woolies store, either a, a big store would be in pretty much every neighborhood. And then they've um, got a lot of growth through Metro stores, which is their smaller formats, no more local stores. And they're running really hard now at um, delivery, you know, through Metro and buying and acquiring businesses through delivery. So they're a very, they weren't very innovative brand, um, I would say. What happened, if I just give you the sort of story, yeah. is in 2016 they were really being out-innovated, you know, like any big brand that's successful and it's a big duopoly here. The other one is Coles. They mm -hmm. were very neck and Coles really were outpacing them. But they had a strategy which was really based around value and down-down and Woolworths weren't really reacting in the right way. They would what I would say, turned their back on customers. They were gouging customers in price they had a positioning around the fresh food people but you know Aldi and and other um you know fresh farmer markets and and all sorts of um online delivery businesses direct to customer or the big supermarkets like the Aldis and Coles or the deliveries were just doing a better job in terms of the experience of fresh and so they were really in a bad place um and it they was they were in a bad place they did actually. I think the time we came in, look, their their physical availability was strong. You know, they were making money, but in terms of innovating and pushing and reinventing for the future and setting themselves up for a, a new customer mindset that had much higher expectations around not just fresh, but sustainable and provenance and local and what value meant for them and how to integrate loyalty better into helping people save um, around, you know, all these things that we talk about with brands around what's the business doing around 
ESG and sustainability? How are we as a business helping solve problems that we've started like plastic bags? You know, they, they hadn't really begun to consider the next chapter and they really had to go under a huge change or or, or stay the same and not innovate. So um, was, that the, the, was that the board that realised? The board was interesting and I think this was helpful, right, because it's not like we were knocking on doors to say you need to change. The yeah. board yeah. welcomed us in and there was a time and they literally had two questions. Why do we exist and who are we for yeah. at the board? at the board level very simple question pretty fundamental right so the entire sorry you don't know the answer to those questions you got a bit of a problem absolutely and i think they were very brave to 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 state that they didn't know the answer but they had a brilliant as i mentioned earlier brad banducci ceo who had come up the ranks and to take it on the board is very um open and um, clear on what they were looking for. Marketing was good in terms there were strong retailers, but they really didn't understand or have time to because it's, you know, it's a very fast-moving business. They were very short-term thinkers, right? It was, it was very much stuck in a calendar of operating in the BAU, which was... Mm-hmm. Communicate Easter, communicate yeah, yeah. merchandising calendar. Yeah. So you've got you've got you've got a bunch of short term because so let's just talk about the ingredients. You've got a board that recognizes the need to change, but you've got an oil tanker that's one of the far the largest retail in Australia that still needs to make the cash registers move. The people are short term, you don't have strategic thinkers, long term thinkers in there. They probably had a they probably had dozens of consultants working through them on all kinds of projects that were never getting done because there was no one to do the the conclusions of the consultant's report. And what does it all add up to, right? Yeah. I think that was no one knew what it added up to. So so tell us about so the board new CEO comes how does Greenhouse come about? So Greenhouse was fascinating. I think again, um, you know, like any big retailer or any big business, um, they weren't central to kind of center of Sydney right you had to travel to get to to Woolworths and I think what yeah campus so what Brad actually had identified is how do we build a sort of a a bit more of a creative campus or a a campus closer in that attracts the right people Um, and he there was a there was a bunch of offerings and buildings sort of in the cool sort of Surrey Hills area Mm And he approached us, actually. I'd come back from New York and um, MNC Saatchi um, was run by James Leggett at the time, quite entrepreneurial, a brilliant creative, um, big, famous for in Australia for big building, big brand platforms, very famous for CAN, which was the Combank work, and 100% Pure, which is the New Zealand, pure New Zealand work. Tom McFarlane, um, you know, we were approached to go what could a new working relationship look like. And at the time, the business was at another agency. But I think based on relationship, they knew they needed a different way and it wasn't an advertising solution. At the time when I'd come back and and, and Tom had been in the business for a long time, um, he in particular didn't want to just have another sort of traditional working relationship where you felt as a creative or as a strategist, you're sort of so far removed from the business, from the problem. He missed being at the table you know, close and being connected into the work and, you know, he's all about the craft. So 
greenhouse didn't really, there were no rules of engagement when we thought about it. What we thought about is how do we create a bespoke model um, that was, you know, you feel like a cliche, but was absolutely customer centric at the core, was very collaborative, that we'd work shoulder to shoulder with the CMO, with the Exco team, with the board, with all the different disciplines across the business, not just marketing. Um, and the question that we started with was sort of how do we build the best brand for customers? Because everyone had identified that that was the the kind of the, 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 the big piece that was missing. <laughs> you know, we had turned our back on customers. So what was the best model to do that? So we built a model led by senior people. I was a strategy partner. We had a creative partner, Tom, and then we had we brought in a, a client partner, partner. And we started to fuel or power, I suppose, the brand and creativity of the Woolworths group um, through, through bringing in very quickly an understanding of their purpose. Um, and that was really my responsibility. What is the purpose of the business? What's at the core? But I think more importantly, what's how do you operationalize that? You know, how do you how do you unlock this value of the brand, which back then was worth at least eight to nine billion? You know, when you put that to the board today, it would be more 14, 13, 14 billion. And you start talking about growth and the and the value of brand and the values that should lead this business. And rather than being sort of empty words that weren't embraced. They were absolutely embraced, lived by, understood and enabled to really unite the organization again. And the organization had been led in quite a traditional way. The people in the stores, et cetera, were never really given the support or empowerment to kind of run their stores locally as they should. It was very much about headquarters and around the corporation. And what we were able to do was really disseminate the the um the purpose and the values and the priorities within the business and really educate on customer priorities go back to basics apply very strong strategic foundations to kind of unite internal teams which was hugely important get them to believe in the brand again reignite kind of the latent love because there was a lot of latent love for the brand but we just had to bring it back. And we did that through a really powerful platform called That's Why I Pick Woolies to bring back rational reasons of why people used to go there, what it did beyond just fresh and good prices. They had partnerships back then with Jamie Oliver. They did a lot. Um, they had really interesting innovation called Free Fruit for Kids when you walked into store, which I think every company now has taken on. We proprietized good Australian things, halftime oranges, you know, like everyone sells oranges, but not halftime oranges, you know, the reindeer carrots, you know, all these things, um, fresh um, market update was hugely successful. How do you bring the store or how do you get away from the store actually back to the farm? So we went on a big push to drive and understand and embed a purpose and a values and a framework and a strategy that put the business back on course, working with clearly the Exco and the teams and pricing strategy and, and fresh strategy. One of the big things we did, we created a purpose, which was all about we bring a little good to everyone every day. And what was fascinating about that was how we took good down to good food and what that meant, good prices and what that meant. But the biggest one was really good acts. And good acts were how the team treats each other, how the team is enabled to treat people who come into the store or, or shop online. 
And they were never able to do that before. It was all about profit. You know, the the Woolworths were the big, big supermarket. How do you bring it back to people and the and the sort of passion and the care that the people brought back to Australians? And that was the journey that we went on. So how do you get um because you, you this is a very operationally driven company. So you have this purpose, then you've got to have these behaviors that illustrate the purpose. So once once a few people do a few of these things, like the half-time oranges, it sort of has life, right? It, it it doesn't have life until someone's imbued an action into those words and suddenly people understand, oh, that is that are those ideas mandated from on high or locally you've got this playbook and you can so we because I would imagine that once you get enough momentum behind it, it sort of becomes self-fulfilling and people aren't like, oh this store in Victoria did this. Okay, that means we could do that. You still have to create an almost an entrepreneurial culture inside the organization that people actually want to put stakes in the ground and and be participants versus waiting for head office to tell them that they need to do this. I'm not sure I'm just I, I think that's a, a really positive view of it. And I think there's elements of that. It wasn't easy and it's still not. Yeah. You know, these are big organizations that have were quite siloed at the time and very operationally run, very difficult to impact or know when to impact a change, particularly in store, because you have to be a year out. You know, we learned that very quickly where we could where we could make an impact and what we could change. The reason I bring up good acts was it was a it was a mindset shift. You know, it wasn't literally um, shifting how you know, logistics or how they go to store. It was literally getting people to just be have a service orientation. We we brought in this notion of just caring, you know, these values. We care deeply. What does that mean? How does that how does that play out in store? How does that play out online? How does it show that we're listening and responding to customers' wishes in a much more effective way? That took off. And all the stores really wanted to be the ones that drove and um, you know, did the best, uh, sort of had the best service. And that internal cultural shift really drove momentum. People felt part of the business before they didn't. If they weren't picking apples or setting the prices, they didn't really feel part of the business, whereas we made them feel like they belonged to something much bigger. Yeah. And so this purpose and these values really did unite the organization, really did build momentum. But you've got to keep putting fuel out there, right? You've got to keep building it. And I think very quickly in seven months, we overtook our largest competitor. Um, and that was so systemic. It was the investments in price that they were making. It was the purpose that we were delivering. It was the big shift in culture going from headwaters, headquarters to support center. It was much more enabling their people. And it was also brand and platform and proprietizing. So there was a huge, huge um, trust that was built quickly. And I would say that's really because of the greenhouse model. We were working together. It wasn't brief us, we'll come back we'll work it out, then we'll have a question. We were sitting around tables going, where do we start? You know, what's what's the big idea? What's the opportunity? And I would say for the first few years, we were able to have pretty much carte blanche because we knew their business strategy inside out. 
We knew their brand. We knew the personality. We knew the impact it could make. We knew how to bring back the connection with Australians. Um, we knew um, they went with us, right? You know, the business went with us and it was a huge success story. But then everything hits, right? You have supply shortages. We have earth, you know, earthquakes. We have like fires. We have COVID. We have all sorts of things that shake the confidence still of businesses. The reason I bring up COVID, um, if you cut that to now, is it was a time where they were so in step with the customer. They would have incredibly listening tools, which they call voice of customer, voice of team, um, voice of government. You know, every day a retailer listens and responds. I was I was blown away by that. You know, we we look sort of longer term. Retail looks around now. They know their numbers every day, which made it even harder to make a difference. But I think what happened during COVID was fascinating. They went from a, a big business that wanted to build and own everything themselves to a much, to almost a platform. And that's where they've gone today to a partnerships and acquisitions. They had to rely on other people to help them um, drive difference and change and acquire new businesses. Oh, yes. Really helped customers above and beyond what they should be doing. You know, they, they did probably similar to a lot of companies, but open store hours and basic boxes and really interesting partnerships that demonstrated that they really did care for Australians. And it was a brilliant demonstration of a brand that became much more generous of spirit when it was a brand back in 2016 that certainly wasn't. So yeah. it wasn't, it did create momentum, but it, but it's it's not easy. You know, there's... Yeah. Um, I think what's really interesting is um, at the end of the day, what it had is an immensely powerful brand. And Absolutely. what had happened was they sort of rested on their laurels and they hadn't really activated it. And what was in, what's interesting is, you know, they were sort of, they, were, they woke up because they saw all these other companies who actually didn't have brand. I mean, I don't know if you have these um, gorillas and these crazy. We have Milk Run, which is similar to Gorilla. Yeah, yeah crazy, which they've just bought, actually, you know, to, to really build that. Look how much money make billions of VC dollars into these companies, and they don't really have a brand. And people are like, who are you? And why am I paying $20 delivery fee? So like a, and, and so it's sort of gone, but it's sort of, the pendulum swing back to okay. I want to. I don't. I don't see these guys having it. People are very bad at relationship management. I mean, Tesco is a brilliant example of a club card, a database, a relationship built through data. Um, that you know everyone's sort of promising, but they don't really have. Very few uh, organizations have the brand to deliver it properly. No, and and I think you know if you look at if you know about Woolworths or look at I mean now now what's fascinating is um, they've shifted to this ecosystem model, so it's much more of a platform of partnerships and acquisitions. They've gone from food to also everyday needs. They're building in services through a different brand, which is called Everyday, which I think is really clever. Um, you know, health and mobile and and yeah. um, insurance and and all sorts of things that is sort of what unlocks value through the entire system. Um, 
but sorry, what was that? I forgot what I was even going to say. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're, you know, we're talking about right. brand. The, brand, the brand also, which is brilliant, was as I said about the fresh few people, but they certainly weren't living it. And what does that mean? Became a tagline as they always do, and it lost that 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 sort of that absolute meaning that ran through the veins of everyone in the organization. The color, you know, going back to, 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 to brand, which we've pushed and own and it's sort of an unfair advantage is green. The competitor is red, right? And what's been fascinating is we took this notion of green that is really adds up and, and unlocks, you know, provenance, sustainability, fresh, environment all these brilliant values that we couldn't talk about back in 2016 because there was absolutely no credibility to do that and we relaunched the fresh food people much more as an ethos and a mindset that everyone was that person and so how do you shift a business and you take something difficult about just dropping um you know dropping prices on 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 certain goods well why don't we drop prices on the biggest pain point customers have like dinner why aren't we dropping prices on healthier and making it easier right um and so how does that whole business really think about this sort of framework and model and what they need to do for customers and absolutely move in that direction it's much more than just an advertising and that that was my proud moment I think when when we had brand strategy and business strategy together where we yeah. talked about those customer priorities when we talked to buyers around the, the absolute produce or the the, the, the products that needed to be in the basket at that time and you get the business to put that in their planning phase you've got the brand and the business moving together yeah. and it's that's hard to achieve and that took years so and there's so many examples let's go, of big let's go back to so greenhouse is the proposition from mnc sachi to Woolworth. yeah right? it was it was pretty collaborative. Uh, again, um, you know, someone like Brad is progressive. He wanted to have a 100% relationship with the people who worked there. They didn't want to have a typical um, client um, agency relationship. We didn't particularly want the typical client agency relationship. It became a joint venture, shared space. We 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 took out um, a brilliant creative space in Surrey Hills um, that everyone wanted to be at. I think year one, we, you know, so MNC sort of were part of it, but MNC wasn't in the MNC Saatchi offices. We knew we didn't want to be there. Um, not that they weren't brilliant, but that would sort of drown an agency culture. We had people absolutely 100% dedicated, working in very agile ways, which could get much closer to the business much faster. And the entire Woolworths marketing department, media companies, um, not all the time, but business strategists, merchandising would all come in and share this space at the right moments. Yeah. And so, you can imagine you got much faster, much closer, much better, more strategic, oh, yeah. much better value and efficiency out of a, an agency model. And we we weren't protective. If we needed to work with other specialists and particularly with them, their CX and data we worked and collaborated with them. That was a model. We didn't call it an agency for that reason. It was a model that was quite tidal and shifted with depending on the problem we were solving. Um, and so that's how did it work? How did it work? Was basically the MNC team was located there, or came in three days a week, or was it full time? Located there, full time. So you, if you were on the Woolworths business, you were on the Woolworths business, and you were working full time. Yeah. 
we turned Greenhouse into a company um, and we um, started with, and this is where the expediency was was great. So me as a partner, Tom as a creative, we brought in um, a lady, Sean Cook from the UK. We were all sitting in the Greenhouse. It started pretty nimble, you know, building before the floodgates of a huge account kind of came to us, we were able to spend three months to really work out the purpose, the frameworks, the strategy, the platforms. Um, we then bought, gosh, 30, 40 people in. You could do that instantly. Clearly the agency of MSC, you know, were, were doing well from that. Um, and the marketing uh, leads, the CMO, Andrew, and, and head of brand and their head leads, all, we all sat together and we mm-hmm. had lovely principles where there's no them, no us, right? So when we won, which we did, brand of the year, marketing team of the year, I or someone with the team would stand up and do that collaboratively. You know, there were times when you didn't know who worked where. And yeah. I think that trust and that relationship really uh, was cemented because of that. We were literally feeling the problems and solving the problems together. Um, and that's hard as well because you don't want to become the client, right? You don't want to be frozen by these the issues and risk associated. So how do you keep bringing in customer culture, fresh perspectives? How do you continue to challenge? Um, uh, and, and, and really that's, that's what we did. We, we created such a culture around greenhouse. We would have, um, you know, greenhouse dinners where we brought really interesting speakers in, we would get to know everyone across the different functions. You know, it wasn't, certainly wasn't the advertising and marketing department. Um, how do we reach and, and learn what their CX or data capabilities are? Um, how do we how do we have people at every level feel very much part of this model? And how do we bring people in to learn from and to help drive this brand through their business? Did you, did you I mean, this must have caused quite a few waves in the Australian advertising community. Did, so because it seems like almost counterintuitive to all maybe not counterintuitive, it's totally intuitive. It's what is it's countercultural. Because the culture is away from agency partnership to agencies as vendors. We're gonna give you an order. It's a project, you got three months to crack it, and then we're done. You go and fi- we go and find another agency, you go and find more clients. That's the way it's being driven right now. This isn't about seven isn't about building something together. It's uh the distrust between agencies and clients has probably never been greater. And um so this is a completely jujitsu move that's all about partnership and all about collaboration. So did you see anyone else out there trying to do something similar? Polls interestingly about a year ago have just opened up um which is the biggest competitor, something in Melbourne similar. Yeah, I'm not sure how it's going, to be honest, but not at the time. I think everyone, when we started, was like, oh, that's an in-house agency. And it wasn't. It was absolutely where I call, you know, in a separate space. It certainly wasn't at the agency. It wasn't at Woolworths because then you would feel. Kind of a neutral territory. It was Switzerland. We were in neutral territory. We were allowed to go upstream. Clients were allowed to go downstream, if that makes sense. You know, 
um, and it really stopped. It streamlined um, the thinking and the conversations. It um, it really broke um, conventional sort of processes and silos, and we really felt part of the business. And um, and you know, going back to they were brilliant retailers, and we were brilliant at building brands. So we didn't bump into each other. We sometimes did, but, you know, you know, because we were trying to feel like what is that longer term ownable strategy? You know, how do we deliver on that purpose? How do we unlock that brand? What does it mean? What does the work look like? How do we, how do we create a calendar that's not so BAU and so short term? Where's the growth? It's, it's the Peter Field, right? Where's the long-term opportunity and big signature experience we're building? And how do you continue to drive sales? Because we had to do both. And, you know, it was, um, it was, it was brilliant because we had a mindset from a corporation that was allowing us to go there and, and we were delivering. So that trust based on effectiveness came very early and we just continued to go and grow deeper into that business, um, to today. I think the first, there were three big chapters. The first chapter was rebuilding strategy foundations Second chapter was this shift to this digital ecosystem and how you start to look at a future brand architecture between the, the group and the role of the group and this new everyday business and loyalty business and food. Um, and now they're probably now, I think only now after seven years, building more internal capability. Uh, they've shifted to agile. They've got more senior marketers in there. They're really systemizing a lot of the thinking and they're enabling their teams to now execute. And I think that's good and bad. It's one of the reasons I left. I mean, it's brilliant. That's what exactly what they need to do. But the kind of impact I think that we made in those first five to seven years was, was, was the fun. You know, that's where the growth, the change, the difference, the, the ups, the downs, the um, relationships were really cemented. I, I, think, I think what's interesting is, is the CEO still there or has he moved on? He's, he's still there. He's still there. Okay. I think you know, he's still there. He, um, you know, he, he, I think it's a hundred years, not for him, <laughs> for the business uh, next year. So who knows? There's all sorts of talk, but um, he's a great provocateur. I mean, he's got the five minutes with Brad is, is a year with anyone else. He's brilliant at um, being open and innovative, understanding where the business has to go, pushing an entire organization to get there but knowing everyone in the business and having utmost respect for everyone in the business. I'll never forget going to one of my first meetings and I was invited into all the Exco, which is the executive leadership team. And I'm like, wow, I'm sitting with some pretty senior big leaders of the biggest business in Australia. The entire conversation was around are the strawberries fresh this year and particularly in one store in Lane Cove where they weren't doing so well. It was incredible. The retail, the detail, the 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 kind of hugely senior, you know, people who are worth millions around this table. But it just demonstrated to me the absolute um, everyday being connected, understanding the customer, getting it right, and yeah. and and building better experiences every day because every day is a different day in retail, right? You know, they just have to keep improving. It really was a huge learning for me. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I, mean, I, I guess, you know, the, the stars kind of aligned to make all this happen. You know, you, you have a board who recognized they needed to change. You had a CEO who was enlightened enough. 
you had an agency that came up with a solution that fitted the, you know, and then you went from there. Um, you know, I think I think that's right because in, in a way it goes back to the disruption the very start of our conversation, which is, you know, here was a client who was prepared to be disruptive and to the utmost degree do something that was long term about ensuring that this company transformed. And uh, and I think what's really interesting in what you're saying is it's um, it's not about an advertising solution. It, 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 it's, it's a fundamental transformation from the inside out of an organization to sort of rediscover who it is and who it, and as you said, those two questions, who are we and who are we for? Um, Absolutely. It's how do you get brand upstream to meet business needs and drive value there? And, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, how do you show the commercial benefits? How do you show the the, the distinctiveness? How do you show the the kind of just connection back and how a brand can have so much power and helpfulness, you know, to different segments across Australia at different times. It really is a standout company today um, that leads and is the most trusted brand many years in a row now, you know, um, there are many here at the moment that are struggling, you know, um, but you know, it hasn't been all ups and downs. It's, 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 it's difficult, but I think it was because of the model that accelerated and drove that impact so quickly. Not just, you know, I, I don't think a typical agency client relationship gets there so quickly and doesn't have such um, trust. And it's really about rebuilding trust, not just for the business and the brand, but for the people that work there. Final question. Um, if you were starting all over again, and you were 22, 23, looking for your first job, where would you go? What would you be doing? What would be, knowing what you know now, if you had to start all over again, where, where would you start? I would go not to an agency. I would go straight to a creative consultant. I love working across different businesses. I love working with brilliant people. I would go, I can't be really the model of like a co-collective, do you know, um, something that is not small, something with scale, something that drives impact through large businesses at scale, something that really takes the understanding of customer and brand and drives it throughout and operationalizes it through a whole business. I think the power and benefit and satisfaction of doing that is immense. And that's what I love doing. How do you invent, reinvent businesses, whether they're startups, scale-ups, shake-ups, you know, what you're doing? That's the, that's the, that's the passion, and I guess, that, that I bring and that's what I love. So I would definitely, if I was Australian in this case, well, I am, I still, I, I shouldn't. I mean, there's some brilliant companies here, but I would still seek out the better ones, probably globally, um, and learn everything I could from the best people. I think that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about surrounding yourself with a brilliant culture, with the best people, solving the biggest problems. And, and so I wouldn't, sh I wouldn't change too much, but I would go straight there. I don't think I'd go to an agency because I've realized that the center of power really isn't in an agency. It's probably more client side or, you know, but that's got a whole, I'm not sure, you know, you have to pick the right client with the right mindset that's looking to grow, um, to go there. Uh, I, there are so many people I've seen shift different sides. Um, 
and they've done brilliantly. You know, they really have accelerated their careers. I've loved what I've done, but, you know, I'm not sitting there being a CEO. I'm not a CMO. You know, um, I love helping enable um, businesses change and understand customer and, and really um, drive and make a difference and, and, and be distinctive. So I would, I would, I would still go small. I'd still go dynamic. I'd still go to brilliant people and able to do brilliant things. I think there are big companies that do that, but there's so many constraints around big business and corporations and, and groups and networks. So I'd be a little bit wary of that. Okay. I would learn the best at a very early age and continue to take on that course. Thank you so much. That's really great. I'm going to stop the recording and...